0: I hope you have a copy of God's Word this morning. We're going to need it. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, and we'll start reading in verse 6. I'll give you a moment to find it. Mark chapter 15, and we'll start reading in verse 6. This is the account of Pilate delivering Jesus to be crucified. God's Word speaks to us and tells us now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, "Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews?" For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And again cried out. they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Won't you pray with me as we ask God to bless the ministry of the word this morning? Gracious Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We are feeble creatures, Lord, who stand in utter dependence upon you. We thank you for your exceeding holiness, your goodness, and that we can call your love our own. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. The vision of a faceless crowd who calls for an innocent man to be killed and calls for a guilty one, a murderer even, to be freed is broadly offensive to us simply by virtue of its, um, its general injustice. But I think often this kind of offense is comfortable for us because it does not challenge our sense of moral superiority to those in this crowd. This is the kind of offense that even one who does not know Christ as Savior may join in having. What really provokes our souls, what what pierces our hearts, is when we understand that this is not a nebulous crowd. This is a score of individuals whose hatred of Jesus Christ cannot be contained by the schemes of man and whose blindness, whose spiritual blindness obscures the truth from them. And what's more is that us, we in this room, we are born into the world fitting that description to a T. So as we look at this account of Pilate's attempt to arrange for Jesus' release, we're going to see that cunning cannot conquer sin. Uh, Pilate has talked with Jesus. He's talked with him in private. He said publicly in the Gospel of John, I find no guilt in him. But what is this Roman governor going to do? He has a score of Uh, people on his doorstep, this massive humanity who is on his doorstep, and they are calling for Jesus to die. Well, I think he sets up a choice that he believes is rigged to let Jesus go free. Uh, Just a few days before this, Jesus had entered into the city, not to cries of death, but to cries of Hosanna. Hosanna even in the highest. And so Pilate presents this choice between a thief-slash-murderer and the one that the crowd seemed to adore only days before. Certainly, they're going to pick Jesus. And certainly, the situation then goes away. Of course, we read that the situation does not go away. The people are led by the chief priests to choose Barabbas and to call for Jesus to be crucified. And in this, we see that human schemes are incapable of holding back evil. Pilate tries to use cleverness to construct a situation where he can convince people not to sin, but it falls apart. His strategy fails, and all the strategies of man, those schemes of man to somehow manufacture manufacture morality in the human heart, eventually fail because they cannot contend with the heart's natural draw to sin we must not think that we can somehow escape or avoid the draw of sin through anything less than the new birth. Our world tells us that you you can fake it until you make it. That if you adjust your behavior, you can somehow get the heart to follow along. That the sin problem that we have is mainly an issue of behavior. Let's just mold that. But God's word tells us, the opposite is true. He tells us that your heart has to be transformed by a powerful, supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit. And that when you walk in faith in Jesus Christ, that is when the power of sin is broken in your life. Even a doctrinal shape wall cannot overcome the power of sin in your life. Even a doctrinal-shaped wall cannot do that. Simply memorizing Scripture Simply knowing the base facts of God's word in your your mental faculties is not enough to deliver you from the penalty and power of sin. You must find deliverance in our Savior who shed his blood on the cross so that through his sacrifice we might be delivered from our sin, all of us who trust in him. Why do we return to this this idea, this lie, that somehow through behavior, uh, behavioral adjustment we can cope with the problem of sin. Are you tired of that this morning? Are you tired of seeing your clever plans fail over and over and over again? Because cunning strategies, they just won't cut it. They cannot address your sin problem. They can't make you righteous before a holy God. And they will not stand against your sinful desires no matter how clever they are. In World War II, um, the German military used a device uh, that they had developed called the Enigma machine. Um, Some of you are familiar with this. It was a machine that encrypted uh, messages so that only people, uh, the right people could read them, okay? And they had adapted a machine um, so that it would be virtually unbeatable in their eyes. This tells you how how incredibly astounding uh, this machine was. They had configured it to have 158 quintillion possible settings. 158 quintillion. I don't even think that we can comprehend the number that big. And so you'll forgive them for thinking that it could not be broken or beaten. But by the end of the war, the Allies were able to crack this code, not in 20 days, not in 20 hours, but in 20 minutes. We can think that our cleverness, our ingenuity, our schemes assure us victory, but when our adversary is a simple heart, those strategies are woefully inadequate to contend with our desires to return to sin. They are insufficient both in this life and in eternity. A devastating mistake is is attempting to treat God's word this way. Um, to think that if we somehow can master the rules that God has given us, that that can construct a wall between us and sin as well. Um, And that's just not the case. Our problem is much more severe than that. We need Christ for this very reason. Have you heard some people describe uh, the gospel this way? They say, well, the gospel is, is this. Love God and love people. Is that a good description of the gospel? No. What is that actually? It's the law. It's the law. That's how Jesus Christ describes both uh, tablets of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love others is a shorthand for that. And it's the way that we are to live. But the law, in all of its beauty, cannot save us by being followed. We must look to Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he became a substitute for sinners so that in him we might be declared innocent of our sin. What's more, is that through Christ, we might gain all of his righteousness. That in that sacrifice that Jesus made, the righteousness, all of his perfection, of his perfect life, was applied to our account so that when God above looks at us, he sees Christ's perfection. Christian obedience is not a scheme to adjust our behavior. Christian obedience... Flows from a heart of love and fear for the holy God with whom we have been made right and righteous through the Savior that we love, Jesus Christ. The schemes of man are as ill prepared to guide us to righteousness as they are to keep us from evil. Pilate fails here to curb sin, he fails by his strategy to overcome the desires of sinful hearts. And this is even clearer as we look at the spiritual blindness of this crowd. What leads to this moment where this this crowd is is ready to crucify Jesus? Well, uh, Jesus was accused of something in particular. In in particular, he was accused of blasphemy. Um, The high priest had brought this charge against him. And we know that the high priest... They had it out for Jesus. They were trying to figure out any way that they could to figure out to, uh, to send him to be executed. They really were not overly particular about what it was in the end that sent him to be executed. But we have here a crowd. They're following the direction of the high priests. And they, I believe, thought that calling for Jesus to be killed was something that glorified God. Think about that for a second. After all, blasphemy is something that does, it deserves not to go unpunished. How can this level of spiritual blindness be possible? This crowd was in this moment not just rejecting Jesus in that particular setting or moment. They were rejecting everything about his ministry. They were saying that every miracle he had performed was not done by the power of God. They were saying that all that he had testified, all that testified to him being the Messiah, was untrue. They were deceived. Their sense of what was right and what was wrong was warped. And as incredible as it seems here that they would choose a murderer over the Messiah, this level of deception is not unusual. It's actually... And the fact that we are unaware of our deception is not evidence against it. If you rely on your own senses to tell you what is reasonable and what is true, you are walking down the same path that led these people in this crowd to think that killing Jesus was an act of virtue. We can think that we're walking the righteous path, but unless our understanding is built upon the infallible word of God we can be catastrophically deceived. I think that we often condescend to the people in this crowd. We look down on them. We feel a sense of moral superiority. After all, they sent Jesus to be killed. But the reality is that if our God did not condescend to us, we would have no way of determining what is right and what is wrong. We would have no certainty of avoiding being deceived by a heart which cries out for us to follow sin. And in that moment of temptation, makes sin look like the most logical thing in the world. We kind of hate that word, condescend, don't we? We don't like when we're condescended to, to be looked down upon, to be seen as lesser than. But the Word of God, Holy Scripture, requires that God condescends to us. Um, Think about it. The infallible, the infinite truth of God's holy word given to us through finite words. It's miraculous. It's not just... A privilege to hold this in our hands. It is miraculous that it's even possible that God in his infinite mind would be able to condescend to take his mind and to place it into a way that we can actually understand it without compromising truth is an incredible gift for us. Don't use your Bible as a prop, an object that fits a role that you're playing. When we read the words of God, we are reading the very mind of God. On these pages. It is an amazing thing. And for us who are in Christ, God does something more. He takes those words and He opens our eyes and He teaches us. He doesn't just teach us from afar off, He actually dwells within us. What an amazing thing that is. God is present with us today, He's present with us even now. He is in this room with us. And he resides within the hearts of believers. So, how do we how do we connect this passage from Mark to what we're doing this morning here in observing the Lord's Supper? Obviously, uh, Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper only a few hours before this scene. But even here, even here, we have a a a scene that guides us to consider the depth of our need for a Savior in Christ. Any attempt to do what Pilate did, which is defense sin through rules, defense sin through strategies, it cannot succeed. Even the law of God is unable, through our power, to bring us to a point of salvation. Your sin debt demands Christ's sacrifice in order to be justified. That's what our minds are called to remember as we consider the Lord's Supper this morning. If the Lord's Supper is inconsequential to you, then perhaps it is the cross that doesn't mean much to you. And I would say this, ask God to open your eyes, to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. Ask God to give you understanding of His Word, of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Seek him that he might guide you to a point of faith. and Then, having been drawn to faith, that he might guide you to worship. If we're left to ourselves, we are incapable of discerning between a murderer and our Messiah. We are sinners all. Jesus laid down his life as a substitute so that sinners might be made innocent, even righteous before a holy God. That's what we remember through the breaking of this bread and the drinking of this cup. We remember the broken body and the shed blood of our dear Savior. Would you pray with me now? God, our Father, it's sobering to be reminded of our need when we were dead in our sin. Lord, we thank you for loving us when we were repulsive and lost in rebellion, for loving us enough to not leave us in our state of despair, but to reconcile us to yourself through the sacrifice made by your only Son. Lord, as we draw near to this table, we pray that you would deepen our love for you and our awe of you. Would you let the things of this world, which normally mean so much to us, fade away in the light of your goodness and grace. Oh Lord, would you give us a taste of the communion that we will enjoy in eternity when we see our dear Savior face to face. It's in the name of our dear Savior Jesus Christ that we pray all of these things for your glory and for your sake. Amen.